0: Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. But before you can truly learn from the tales of our past, you must first understand them. And you're in luck because you found the one and only show that dives deep into the historical figures of our past and how key events have shaped the world that we live in today. You're tuned to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery, right here on WRFH, Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. With your host of today's show, Connor Bolanos.
1: Welcome, everyone, to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Connor Bolanos, joined in the studio by my wonderful producer, Kendall Doerr. And I'm excited to record what I think is the first episode of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery in almost, maybe, nearly a year now. So, apologies to all of you who love the show for being gone for a year. But we got a great lineup for what I think are really some of the important historical figures that we have yet to cover on this show. And I'm really excited to cover today's historical figure because I think his role in what is perhaps one of the greatest events in European history, certainly cannot be understated. And that person that we're going to be talking about is Otto von Bismarck, the Iron Chancellor, the man whom many claim is responsible for German unification, and by extension, all that came after it, and also the father of what people like to call Realpolitik. Given his influence, given his position in history, and what people think of him, I can't think of a better way to get back into the first episode of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery for this year. So with that said, let's jump right into Otto von Bismarck's childhood. Otto von Bismarck was born in 1815 at Schoenhausen, a noble family estate belonging to the Bismarck family west of Berlin in the Prussian province of Saxony. His his father, Karl Wilhelm Ferdinand von Bismarck, was a Junker estate owner and former Prussian military officer. A Junker is just the word for Prussian landed nobility. His mother, Wilhelmine Louise Mencken, was a well-educated daughter of a senior government official in Berlin. Bismarck was educated at the Johann Ernst Palmen's Elementary School and the Friedrich Wilhelm and Kloster Secondary Schools. Then, from 1832 to 1833, he studied law at the University of Göttingen, where he was enrolled as a member of the Corps Hannover, and then enrolled at the University of Berlin from 1833 to 1835. In 1838, while stationed as an army reservist in Greifswald, he studied agriculture at the University of Greifswald. It was here in Göttingen that Bismarck befriended the American student John Luther Motley, Motley, who later became a prominent historian and diplomat, remained relatively close to Bismarck throughout his college and post-college career, ultimately writing a novel in 1839 called Warden's Hope or The Memoirs of a Provincial about life in German university. And in it, there's this character who's alluded to as basically being Bismarck, who's described as reckless, dashing, eccentric, but also extremely gifted and charming. Bismarck, if you couldn't tell already, was well-educated he knew english, french, italian, polish, russian. it was noted that he was had a gift for a conversation and despite his relatively more rural upbringing, he had a very kind of cosmopolitan attitude about him. the only thing about bismarck that was perhaps stereotypical of him was the fact that he was well known for wearing military uniforms and this kind of gave him that look of being a very classical kind of prussian junker um if you've ever seen a picture of bismarck it is probably one of him in a military uniform with an iron cross or something of that effect with a uh, prussian pickle halb on his head And this uniform was just part of this military kind of outlook that Bismarck wanted to create of himself. And it's something that'll come up later in our show, but something that remained with him for the entirety of his life. So Bismarck, from an early age, had planned to be a diplomat. This was his long-held hope. And he had started his practical training, though, as a lawyer in Aachen and Potsdam first, and soon resigned, having first placed his career in jeopardy, supposedly, by taking unauthorized leave to pursue two English girls that he was allegedly interested in. Then in 1838, Bismarck began a career in the Prussian army, serving in the, serving because he had to under the compulsory military service that the state had. And in this capacity, he actively served as a one-year volunteer before becoming an officer in the Prussian Wendler, which is basically just the equivalent of their army reserve. Afterwards, he returned to run his family estates at Schoenhausen uh, following the death of his mother in his mid-20s. In 1847, aged 32, Bismarck was chosen as a representative to the newly created Prussian legislature, the Verdingter Landtag. There he had gained a reputation for being a reactionary politician and a loyalist, with a gift for very scathing rhetoric, and he openly advocated for the idea that the monarch of Prussia had a divine right to rule. In 1848, this reputation certainly came to light in the revolutions of 1848. The revolutions of 1848 was a wave of revolutions across Europe that sought to impose constitutions, enact social change, and perform a variety, I guess you could say, of liberal reforms uh, to the various states of Europe, which were still largely considered to be very conservative, very monarchist. Uh, and Bismarck, true to his reputation of being a staunch royalist and reactionary, attempted to rouse the peasants of his estate into an army to march on Berlin in the name of the king. This ultimately did not happen, and he was told instead to make himself useful by arranging food supplies for the army from his estate if they were needed. However, much probably to the dismay of Otto von Bismarck, the liberals who revolted in 1848 were able to enact a sort of constitution in Prussia, albeit a very limited one. In 1849, Bismarck was then elected to the Landtag of Prussia. At this stage in his career, he was pretty much within this opposed to the idea of the unification of Germany, something which had come up during the 1848 revolutions when a Diet of Frankfurt had met in order to attempt to confer the German crown onto someone to unify all of Germany. And while he was opposed to this at the time, uh, citing that he was concerned that Prussia would lose its ultimate independence, he does, you know, ultimately come around and really becomes the architect, you could say, of German unification in 1870. In 1851, Frederick William IV appointed Bismarck as Prussia's envoy to the Diet of the German Confederation in Frankfurt. In doing so, Bismarck gave up his seat in in the Landtag, but was ultimately appointed to the Prussian House of Lords a few years later. It was here in Frankfurt that Otto von Bismarck often found himself engaged in, you could say, a political battle with Count Friedrich von Thunen-Hohenstein, an envoy from the Austrian Empire who was in the, Fra- in the Diet of Frankfurt and attempting to exert Austrian influence over the German region, something which the Prussians were obviously trying to do at the same time. It was during these eight years that Bismarck also seemed to move away from this kind of arch-conservative reactionary politics that he was known for. Not to get me wrong, Bismarck was still very conservative and still very much in support of the monarchy during this time. But during this time, he also became more convinced that in order to counter Austria's growing influence, Prussia would have to ally herself with other German states. And consequently, he ultimately became more accepting of the notion of a unified German nation. And he came to believe that he and the conservatives of Prussia Russia could take the lead in creating that unified nation. And the reason he wanted the conservatives to take the lead on that is because he had seen what happened when the liberals tried to do so in the revolutions of 1848. And the constitutions and form of government that they proposed were just not something that Bismarck thought would be good for Germany, and it's not something that he wanted. And so he saw himself during these years in Frankfurt as an emerging, I guess you could say, conservative leader who could rally the conservative elements of Prussia to Forward German unification under Prussia rather than Austria.
0: For anyone just tuning in, you're listening to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos, the show where we dive deep into the historical figures of our past to better understand our present.
1: For all of you just tuning in, welcome back to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery on Radio Free Hillzo 101.7 FM. We just got done talking about Bismarck's early life and his early career, and now we're going to jump right into, really, I guess you could say, the meat of it, the Realpolitik, his time as Chancellor and the Minister-President of Prussia. Bismarck's chance to become Minister-President of Prussia came in 1862. In the early 1860s, The recent king, Wilhelm I, was facing issues with an increasingly liberal Prussian Diet, and it really came to blow in 1862 when the Prussian Diet refused to authorize funding for a proposed reorganization of the army. The king's ministers and all the people within the conservative government were unable to convince the legislators to pass the budget, and the king was unwilling to make any compromise. It got so bad that Wilhelm had threatened to abdicate at one point in favor of his son, the crown prince Frederick William. But ultimately, what ended up happening is that they turned to Bismarck. Bismarck was believed to be the only man capable of handling the crisis. And although Wilhelm was really concerned about handing the power to Bismarck, as Bismarck was well known for being this sort of politician who really wanted all the power and really wanted to consolidate it. In particular, he had made uh, suggestions that he wanted more control over Prussia's foreign policy, something that Wilhelm was, you know, worried about. But ultimately, he had no choice, and so it was in September 1862 that when the House of Deputies overwhelmingly rejected the proposed budget that Wilhelm was persuaded to recall Bismarck to Prussia, and where on the 23rd of September 1862, Wilhelm appointed Bismarck the minister-president and foreign minister of Prussia. Now, from his appointment as minister president of Prussia, we could go from a few different ways. We could go chronologically on the rest of his life, or what I think is the better approach, we can break down Bismarck's role in both Prussian politics and as well as in German unification. And I think through that way, we can get a better understanding of you know how Bismarck really worked. And I think the best way to do this is let's get started on his politics, this realpolitik that he is supposedly well known for. The Realpolitik politics can be described as, in essence, pragmatism at its highest form. Bismarck, while identified as a conservative, was more than willing to take on policies and issues that maybe conservatives wouldn't in order to gain political power and support. One example is that Bismarck is one of the founders of one of Europe's earliest welfare states. Uh, The Socialist Party within Germany during the 1860s, 1870s, and and from there on, started to really gain traction amongst the German people. And there were calls, uh, especially amongst the Socialist Party, for the creation of a sort of welfare system. While Bismarck, in an effort to gain the support of the Socialists at one point, despite the objections of many conservatives who obviously see a welfare system as something inherently bad, he chose to go ahead and implement one anyway, to draw away the Socialist voters from the Socialist Party and to put them into his own party and his own pocket. Bismarck was also known on numerous other occasions to adopt liberal platforms, to compromise with liberals. And because of this, he was really effective at wrangling together a German Landtag, which would support the policies of the king, support his own foreign policies, which we'll get into later, but a lot of which were incredibly militaristic, but also to support even his own really conservative policies, one of those being the Kulturkampf. The Kulturkampf was an effort by Otto von Bismarck following the unification of Germany from 1872 to 1878 to try and wrestle clerical control away from education and ecclesiastical appointments, uh, particularly in the south of Germany, which was heavily Catholic while the majority of Germany being in the north was a largely Protestant nation. The Kulturkampf had ultimately mixed results, but was really a demonstration that although Bismarck had passed conservative and liberal policies, he was still at heart a conservative. And so I think this really just goes to show that for, for Bismarck, Ideology wasn't the driving factor behind his politics. It was pragmatism and how he could best achieve his goals, which was the unification of Germany, the strengthening of the German military, and the strengthening of the German monarchy. And as I've been hinting at before we jump into Bismarck's unification of Germany, I want to revisit the point about Bismarck being and constructing this image and politics of himself as a military man. So I mentioned earlier into pretty much every single meeting of the Prussian Landtag, despite him not actually being a military officer, he wore a military uniform. He wore the Prussian Pilkowhelm, And I really think that an excerpt from his blood and iron speech in 1862, really demonstrates his kind of militaristic attitude. In a meeting of the Prussian Landtag uh, Budget Commission on September 30, 1862, in his first speech after becoming the Chancellor of Prussia, he said, quote, It is not by speeches and majority resolutions that the great questions of the time are decided. That was the big mistake of 1848 and 1849, but by iron and blood, end quote. From this quote, we can see it's not by majority speeches and resolutions that questions like German unification will be solved in the minds of Bismarck. He references 1848. As I had mentioned earlier, this is when you had the Diet of Frankfurt, where a number of of German liberals had come together in an effort to create a new state. And what they did was essentially what Bismarck said, attempted to pass majority resolutions that they thought would see Germany unified, which it ultimately wasn't. And so Bismarck ultimately comes to see the military the Prussian military as the main arm through which Germany can become united under the Kingdom of Prussia.
0: If you're not reading and learning history, then you're doomed to repeat it. For all of you just tuning in, you're listening to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos.
1: For all of you just joining us, welcome back to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. We just got done talking about Bismarck's real politique and his time in the Prussian parliament, but now having just discussed his kind of militaristic approach from the Blood and Iron speech, I think we have a nice transition into the unification of Germany, something which was ultimately settled through iron and blood. This approach to Germany, Bismarck's approach to German unification began with the Austro-Prussian War in 1866, also known as the Seven Weeks War. If the nickname doesn't give you any indication of what probably happened here, you're about to find out exactly what happened. In 1864, Prussia and Austria had fought the Second Schleswig War together, occupying the province of Schleswig-Holstein, which exists in, at, was at the time part of southern Denmark. They held joint occupation over the territory. And on the 26th of January, 1866, the Prussian representative in Schleswig-Holstein protested the decision of the Austrian governor of Holstein to permit the estates of the duchies to call up a united assembly. Prussia declared this a, de- a breach of the principle of joint sovereignty. Austria obviously did not think so. And through a series of escalations that even saw them both go to the German Diet on the 1st of June of that year, Prussia would ultimately declare war on Austria for this. Obviously, if it sounds a bit odd to you as a reason to declare war, it should. It's perhaps not the strongest justification for war to ever exist. But keep in mind, Bismarck wanted this to happen, and this gave him the excuse and reason for it to. What happened next was, if it wasn't made clear by my earlier reference to the nickname of the austro-prussian war the seven weeks war was that austria got utterly devastated in the war they really got it handed to them by the prussians the prussians having had emerged from a serious military reorganization overseen by helmuth von moltke during the 1860s uh, saw prussian superior training and tactical doctrine in addition to their own recent invention the drazy needle gun destroying the austrians at the Battle of Königgrätz, where the battle, where the war was truly decisively won. Following their defeat at Königgrätz, the Austrians, the Prussians, mediated by uh, France's Napoleon III, the Emperor of France, for- signed the Peace of Prague on the 23rd of August, 1866, which formally dissolved the German Confederation and saw Prussia annex four of Austria's former allies, in addition to permanently exclude Austria from German affairs which in doing so left Prussia free to form the North German Confederation the following year, a confederation that saw various uh, German states in the north unite under the kingdom of Prussia in a sort of quasi-federal system. However, many of the southern states, such as Bavaria, had not joined into the North German Confederation, hence why it's called the North German Confederation. And this is what Otto von Bismarck would attempt to resolve in his last and probably most decisive war to achieve german unification the franco-prussian war following his exce- his success in the austro-prussian war Otto von Bismarck had achieved the North German Confederation, but still needed a way to get the Southern States to peacefully agree to join the North German Confederation. If Otto von Bismarck had invaded the South, he wasn't really setting wouldn't be setting a message of German unity, as it would be a German unity, German unity achieved through the co- through the cost of blood paid by fellow Germans in the South. And so Bismarck needed to find a way to get these Southern States to peacefully and willingly join with Prussia to form and create a unified Germany. And he would see the means to do so in 1870 with the Second French Empire under Emperor Napoleon III. The immediate cause of the war surrounded the issue of Spanish succession for the throne, where the Spanish king had died and had left no clear heir, leading to a series of succession disputes across Europe. The Hohenzollerns, the family that ruled over the Kingdom of Prussia, had a candidate in mind in the form of Leopold Hohenzollern-Sigmaringen. And while he was ultimately withdrawn from the throne due to French diplomatic pressure, Otto von Bismarck goaded France into declaring war by releasing an altered summary of what was called the Ems Dispatch, which was a telegram sent by Wilhelm I rejecting French demands that Prussia never again support a holland candidate. Bismarck's edit of the Ems Dispatch, as mistranslated by the French press, Havas, made it sound as if the king had treated the French envoy in a demeaning fashion, which had inflamed public opinion in France. Then Napoleon III, under pressure from various ministers and advisors who wanted a war against Prussia in order to demonstrate French might and strength, was goaded into declaring war and marching an army across the Rhine, the act of which made the southern German states fearful of French invasion and ultimately convinced them to join with Prussia. The Franco-Prussian War was an utter humiliation for France. While France had held out longer than Austria had during the Austro-Prussian War, lasting about six months, it was nothing but less than a decisive defeat for the French. The French had their army smashed on the Rhine. Napoleon III, the emperor, was captured at Metz. Paris was put under siege with a communist uprising happening in the city only months later. France was humiliated, forced to pay billions in indemnities, and stripped of Alsace-Lorraine. But more humiliating, perhaps, was that Wilhelm I would be crowned Emperor of Germany in the halls of Versailles. The place that once represented the magnificence, the majesty, and the power of French kings now served as a representation and as, and as the birthplace of the German Empire that Otto von Bismarck had helped to form. From all of this, we can see that Bismarck's legacy is truly a powerful one. He was a man who left a distinct mark on German politics really creating what we came to know today as Realpolitik. He's the architect, but alongside Helmut von Moltke, of German unification. And he really un- brought Germany together in a way that allowed it to avoid a lot of the issues that the Italian unification had seen and a lot of the issues that unification would have seen if it had followed the path that the Diet of Frankfurt proposed in 1848. But perhaps most importantly of Bismarck's legacy is what the sociologist Max Weber ultimately would come to say. And that said, Otto von Bismarck's sort of authoritarian rule over Germany had deprived the people of Germany without any political will or political education, and that Bismarck's chancellorship had made the German people more open to the idea of an authoritarian figure. It is certainly a question for debate, but based on what Max Weber said, one could say that Bismarck's legacy is perhaps what allowed Adolf Hitler to rise to power and what it allowed people such as Ludendorff to see such control over the German state in World War I. Thanks for tuning in to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Join us next time as we discover yet another historical figure from our past.
0: And that's all the time we have left today for you history buffs. There's many more historical figures from our past to discuss, so be sure to join us same time, same place, next week for a new edition of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos.